Today on This Week in Startups, we have an Ask Me Anything featuring All Turtles CEO and co-founder Phil Libin, formerly of Evernote and General Catalyst. This AMA was recorded live in our Twist Slack channel. To participate in weekly AMAs and discuss all aspects of startup life with Jason and our community of 25,000 founders, join us at thisweekinstartups.com slash slack. This episode is brought to you ad-free thanks to our partners LinkedIn, Salesforce, and Pitney Bowes. Hey, everyone. Uh, I am Phil Libin. I am the CEO and co-founder of All Turtles. Uh, before that, I've done an assorted bunch of other things. Uh, programmer by background, started a few companies. Uh, probably the most uh, notable uh, was, was a co-founder and CEO of Evernote. Then was a VC and uh, now I'm back in the startup world, so glad to be here. Uh, okay, let's get into questions from the Slack channel. Nick says, in your state machine model, how early should companies prioritize looking into resurrection? Lines five and nine of inactive users into low and high value users. Uh, that's a really good question. I wonder how many people know what Nick is talking about. Uh, I gave a talk uh, about the uh, state machine uh that answers all startup growth questions. I'm sure it's online somewhere. I'll probably put a link to it. Um, uh, yeah, good question, Nick. I think uh, basically you should focus on this as early as you actually have inactive users, right? So the idea is um, most companies uh, think about getting new users from people who have never tried their product before. So they do a lot of sales and marketing and kind of outreach that way. But over time, you build up this large group of people who had tried your product. They just don't use it anymore. They're inactive. And in the beginning, there's not very many people in there. And so it's easy to ignore them. But over time, that builds up into a bigger and bigger pool. And uh, it may actually be a lot more efficient, a lot cheaper to try to resurrect those people, to try to re-engage them. Uh, so you should start taking that seriously, I think, as soon as you have... Uh, big enough pool of people that are inactive. Uh, you know, one way to think about it is you look at how many new users you're getting, new customers you're getting, you know, every month. And if the number of new customers you're getting every month is like, you know, maybe 10% of the total number of people in that inactive bucket, then you can probably start actually getting as many people or close to as many people from reactivations as from new people. And it's usually cheaper to reactivate than get new people. So I would think about it like that. Look at the percentage uh, and decide when it makes the most sense. David Fox asks, uh, thoughts on Notion? I've been an Evernote user since 08. Me too. Thank you. Uh, no, 07 for me. I got you beat by a year. But Notion seems to be winning over Evernote fans. Uh, so I think Notion is pretty good. Uh, we use Notion at All Turtles. We mostly use it as a kind of as a good um, you know, internal wiki and project tracker, which isn't something that... Uh, that I think we, we ever made Evernote to be particularly uh, great at. Uh, I still use Evernote every day for kind of all of my personal stuff. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I am a Notion fan. I think they're doing a, uh, a good job. Uh, Tom Preet, uh, three questions. Question the first. As CEO, what brings you the most joy as a CEO? Any examples? Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, one thing to point out is... Um, People often ask me if I'm in, if I'm having fun at my job, and I pretty much always say no because it's not actually that much fun. Um, to be honest with you, I don't know any good CEOs that are really having fun. It's actually not a job that most people enjoy doing. Uh, some people do, psychopaths. Uh, but I think most people I know who are actually pretty decent CEOs don't enjoy it. They don't do it because they enjoy it. So it's not necessarily optimized for fun. It's very fulfilling. 
Um, but uh, joy is kind of a kind of a, an interesting word. Uh, but yeah, yeah, sometimes uh, things things do bring me joy as a CEO. Um, uh, the small picture, like the very tactical version of that, is like my new my my favorite thing to do in the past like year or so has been to get in Figma and uh, just see what all of our designers are working on kind of in real time, just see like the whole ant colony and see where people are swarming and be able to zoom in and take a look at stuff. So I kind of just get joy, like pretending to do real work as a CEO in Figma and I can like comment on things and talk to people. So I think Figma has, uh, is, is kind of my favorite small joy, you know, guilty CEO pleasure on the bigger and kind of more scalable side of things. Uh, you know, look, my favorite thing in the world is when I see that someone did something professionally, like at my company or companies, and uh, and it came out really great, and I didn't know about it beforehand. That's the best. Oh my god, I love that feeling. The greatest feeling as a CEO is when your employees like do something and it comes out amazingly well, and you didn't even know about it beforehand. Um, uh, you know, I think the more frequently that happens, the more you can say you're succeeding uh, as a CEO. So that 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 when that happens, and I'm really lucky enough where it actually happens quite a lot. Um, uh, it's great. It's uh, it's when I am happiest. Question: The second, as a software engineer, what was one of the most difficult things you had to overcome? Um, I don't know. Everything is difficult. I mean, I'm a I'm a giant nerd. Um, I've always been kind of socially awkward. Uh, I'm shy. I'm introverted. This is this is difficult. Doing this is painful. I'm not even like talking to anyone. I'm just looking into a camera and like just this is like hard. Uh, none of it comes none of it comes naturally. Um, but you know, I mean, there's lots of people with lots worse problems than I have, uh, and I just try to focus on what I'm trying to accomplish and just do it and get get reasonably good at you know at what I'm doing. Um, there was a lot of bad habits that I had that I think I've 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 broken a little bit. So I've been f- trying really hard to establish healthy habits, both in terms of actual, you know, health, uh, but also in terms of management style and, uh, and work and being company. So there's a lot of things that I don't know if overcome is the right word, but they're like habits that I've broken that have to do with, uh, you know, hiring people and delegating and leadership and communications. The current thing that I'm struggling with the most that I think I'm making progress on, uh, but I've actually, I, it's been very easy for me to neglect regular communication with my coworkers. Uh, in the past, um, I tended to make many decisions based on very quick, casual conversations with people who were physically near me. So I'll, at, at Evernote and before that and after that, a lot of the a lot of strategy, a lot of big decisions are just made by you know me walking down the hall or walking for coffee with someone, making a decision, and um, that's kind of sucks for remote people. Uh, but that's just like the way it's been. And I've been aware of that as, as a shortcoming in my management style. And of course, now with the lockdown, everyone's remote. I don't get to like go walk for coffee with anyone. So I really had to like force myself to communicate and over communicate. And I'm communicating much more now with than I've ever had before. And, uh, it's hard. Uh, but it feels like actually we're a lot more productive. So I think I'm, I am better because of it. Tom's question. The third, what's one thing early founders don't think is important? Uh, what's one thing early founders don't think is as important as it really is? besides culture. Because uh, I think I've probably given talks where I've said that culture is the most important thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, everything, right? Founders, I think, discount everything other than the thing they're great at. So the way most startups work is uh, uh, the founders have superpowers in something, something pretty narrow, and they're great at that. And they think that's the only important thing and everything else is not important. And it actually turns out that, no, most of the other stuff is really important too. You just happen to suck at it. And you're not really going to 
scale very far if you continue with that. Uh, one example, for example, for, for example, is uh, price. All right. So at Evernote, um, <laughs> the night before we launched it, you know, we, we we were freemium at Evernote, so we had a free version and a paid version. And uh, uh, the night before we launched it, um, uh, I realized at 3 a.m. that oh crap, we forgot to decide what the price is going to be. And so I just randomly picked it. I'm like, five bucks a month, random selection, because, you know, $4 is too cheap, $6 is too expensive, $5 sounds right. So we picked that price at random, and then we didn't change it for six years. So for six years, Evernote cost five bucks a month. And I knew it was the wrong price. For six years, I knew it was the wrong price, because I remember that I picked it at random, and I thought, well, the odds of me picking the right price at random are pretty low. Um, But I didn't know anything about pricing. And because like, and startups, you know, people who understand pricing don't usually hang out at startups. Uh, and so for six years, we, we optimized everything else. We did massive testing on every feature and everything, but the price was always five bucks. And then finally, like six years later, we were already a unicorn. We already had, you know, hundreds of millions of users. Um, we hired somebody who understood pricing and they explained pricing theory to me. And I thought it'd be boring, but it's actually endlessly fascinating. And then we started doing pricing experiments and we like doubled our revenue you know, within like, I think a year or something or 18 months without changing the product mix, basically from just being better at pricing. So that's a good example, right? Pricing is something that like most startups don't understand and therefore think is not important, but actually it's really important. Rule of thumb on this is uh, whenever you go from not doing something to doing something half-assed, that's like an easy doubling. So if there's like something that you're not doing in your startup, like just just going from nothing to like kind of okay, like not thinking about pricing to being like just barely competent with pricing, easy double. Um, and there's ample opportunities for that. Graham G asks, hi, Phil, your talk at scale was among the highlights of my trip. Thank you. I don't know which one exactly, but great. Uh, during the early days, pre-product market fit, do you think that more metrics are always better for founders or would you recommend focusing on those North Star metrics that can keep founders focused on the most important business levers? Thanks. Um, this is a good question. I've got a chart that I used to draw about this. Um, and it kind of looks like this. So uh, imagine uh, at the beginning, there's a timeline in the x-axis. And the y-axis is all the way on top is 100% instinct, 100% like intuition, gut feel. And at the bottom, it's like 100% data-driven, metrics-driven. And the chart is like what percentage of your decisions as a company over time are like, how much are they just like gut-driven, like instinct-driven? vision and how much of it is is metrics based and what happens at most startups most successful startups is they start out like all the way on top so in the beginning you're basically doing things based on your gut feel your 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 founder's understanding and intuition of the customer and that's like that's what it takes like there's really no data and if you start if you're like before you do anything you do a whole bunch of analysis that rarely leads to anything really good so I really believe that in most of the things that I'm involved in or successful things that I've been a part of or invested in, in the beginning, it's like, it's just, it's just vision. It's all gut. And then over time, like people are like, oh, you know, we're not really listening to the customer. We're not making decisions based on enough data. Let's institute more metrics. Let's make the state machine. And then over time, it kind of goes down, 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 down until like all of the decisions are data driven. And then you start hearing complaints the other way. Oh, it's not, you know, it's not as cool anymore. We don't have like the same innovation. We're just like micro optimizing things. And then it starts to creep back up and then it goes down and then it like oscillates. So over enough time, a mature product, a mature startup will kind of oscillate between like making important decisions based on somebody saying, I think we're going to do this because that is my like 
founder level, you know, designer level intuition versus here's how we've sliced the metrics. Um, so I think at an early stage, like pre-product, my guess is actually don't, don't overanalyze because you just like, you're just better off like having a strong opinion about this is the right way to do it. And then you do that. And then, you know, as you get more metrics, you get more metrics. And the state machine that we've talked about a lot, I think is a good way to like know whether you've got meaningful metrics and decide what to optimize for. But in the beginning, I, I think it's, it's, it's instinct as well, as long as you understand that that's going to get you into trouble in the long term. So in the long term, you have to go to data, but then that's going to get you into trouble. So then you have to like adjust and get back into it. Craig, uh, says, how have setbacks or failures in the past changed the way you approach problems or roadblocks? What changes will you make after COVID? Um, I mean, setbacks or failures is like, I mean, man, that's like, that's a lot, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of setbacks and failures in life. Um, I guess it's interesting to maybe define what a failure is ahead of time and like what's not a failure. Um, so I think like a failure is, is like, if I wasted my time, if I did something and in hindsight, I shouldn't have done it. Like I should have made a different decision. Uh, it isn't necessarily whether or not the product succeeded or something like that. It's like, did I do something that in hindsight, I'm like, well, that was stupid. And I've been lucky that hasn't happened to me that much. I mean, once in a while, maybe more in my personal life than my business life, but once in a while. Um, but for the most part, like even things that haven't worked out financially, I've kind of said, yeah, like if I had to do it all over again, would I do it the same way? Yeah, I, I, you know, I probably would. Um, but, but setbacks are like constant, right? Like there's all sorts of stories about how at Evernote, we almost ran out of money and were bailed out at 3 a.m. by an investor, you know, phone call and I mean, lots and lots and lots of setbacks constantly. Um, the biggest mistakes, the biggest setbacks, the biggest errors are always people related. It's always, I mean, usually it comes down to not firing someone quickly enough, right? Usually if I had to like boil everything down to its essence, if I had to boil it all down to like the number one, like most essential frequent problem, it's not separating from somebody quickly enough professionally. Like you kind of know that it's a bad fit, but for whatever reason, it drags on and on. Um, that's like, that's the most common thing. Um, I have a, I have a thing, like a principle around this that I, I think I've drawn as a graph. I call it the tip of the fuckberg. Um, it's basically means that, um, uh, when you actually get around to firing someone, the reasons, be, you know, for poor performance, the reasons like after you fire them, the problems that you thought they were making are like teeny, teeny, teeny little tiny portion of like the actual things that you're going to find out are the problems after you've gotten rid of that person because they're not there anymore to cover things up and you're just going to discover all this stuff. This is universally true. This is like the truest thing I've ever said. Every like CEO that I ever know that I say tip of the fuck book to is like, oh my God, yes, that, that has happened to me so many times. So it's usually comes down to that. It's like the unwillingness to part ways with, you know, someone that it's obviously not working out with. And uh, it's hard stuff to do. I'm still not particularly necessarily great at it, although I've tried to get better. In terms of what changes I'll make after COVID, that's a really good question. We're taking that very seriously. Um, uh, I mean, I think I, I said this a couple of weeks ago. Um, I had this this realization, right, a few weeks ago where it finally sank in how I'm non-essential, right? Because like, obviously, like through a lot of repetition, I'm not essential. Uh, and that was a weird feeling, right? Because like, I'm kind of used to thinking myself as vaguely important in some unspecified way. And here I am, like, obviously non-essential. And it's odd. I'm like, what does that mean? 
And I decided the way to think about that is to, is to say, okay, well, yeah, I'm not essential right now to the current management of the problem. So how do I become essential to the rebuilding? Like, how do I become essential to gluing the world back together? How do we, you know, because most people I know are also non-essential to the actual short-term crisis, how do we become essential to the recovery? How do we make the post-COVID world better than the pre-COVID world? What is the new essential? So all the projects that, that I'm involved with, that I'm either running or investing in or involved in, we've, we've, we have moved all of them into thinking, how do we become essential to gluing the world back together through the repair uh, and uh, we're working on products on that, around that. Lots of things in healthcare, lots of things in productivity. I'll come back and demo some stuff hopefully soon. Uh, and um, I think it's going to be tons of changes. In terms of actual like work changes, like, yeah, I don't know when we're going to go back to work physically. I just, I just announced today out of all hands that we're definitely not going back to any kind of physical location until September at the earliest. And I don't, I don't know what's going to happen in September, but certainly between now and September, we're not going to go back into an office space. Um, and I, I just did that because I wanted people to have like the, you know, the, 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 a few months if they're trying to figure out where to spend the next few months or something, they, they know they're not going to get called back in, but we'll see how it goes after that. Andre or Andre, uh, asks, how would you compare Notion versus Rome Research versus Evernote? Uh, what are strong and weak sites of each platform? Um, so yeah, you know, I don't, I haven't used, uh, Rome stuff very much. I've, I've seen it. It looks kind of interesting. It looks, it looks, uh, kind of involved. Um, you know, we, I made Evernote for me and I'm kind of lazy and disorganized. <laughs> this is like a common misconception is like people think I'm like well organized because I was like, you know, co founder of Evernote. Nope, not well organized at all. I kind of the system that we made, we made because I'm like poorly organized and I wanted to be just as productive as organized people without actually having to do the work of organization. Um, so I kind of like the just dump everything into it and it, it figures it out. Um, but I haven't used Rome, but I've heard good things about it. It's probably not for, for my kind of mentality. Um, in terms of Notion, yeah, I just talked about that. I think, I think it's actually pretty good. We use it more as like a publishing, like a wiki project manager type of thing and, and, and Evernote for actually like remembering everything, keeping, you know, keeping track of stuff. Um, but I'm not, I'm not an expert in actually, honestly, by now I'm not an expert in any of it. I haven't been involved in it with Evernote for what, four years now, something like that. That's a long time. But still a big fan, still use the product every day um, and uh, still have, you know, lots of friends there. So Jeff says, have you completed your goal of one pull up? Last <laughs> I saw you banged out a chin up in 2017. Yeah. Where did I say this? Maybe it was like a, I forget somewhere I said that like my goal, maybe it was like a Tim Ferriss podcast or something. I don't know. But I said that my goal in life is to be able to do a pull up because I've never done a pull up. Never. Never been able to, um, uh, and never been able to do a chin up. Uh, you know, remember back in from like elementary school being constantly tormented because I just couldn't do a pull up or a chin up. You know, I'm just abnormally weak, you know, T Rex arms, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and, uh, and then I was really overweight for a very long time, actually kind of morbidly obese for, for a long time. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, so I've been working on it and I did, I did do a chin up and I'm actually up to five now. I can do five chin ups, which is great. And, uh, yeah, I can do one pull up. Just one. But yeah, I, I have. I have met my goal. I can do one pull-up. I'm not even going to try for more. I'll do more chin-ups, but I'm happy with one pull-up. And yeah, I can do it. And I did it uh, about a year ago, maybe a little year and a half ago. Still at one pull-up. So, you know, small wins. Thanks for that question, Jeff. That wasn't embarrassing at all. Sina B or Sina B, I don't know, says, um, Hi, Phil. As you said, many companies focus on just one market and build up from there, but you guys invest in a global presence early. 
early on in the process and try to have users from Asia Pacific regions in the early days. How did you guys manage to do that? Was it only marketing campaigns? Or did you guys have strategic partners in that region? Um, I guess I'm not sure who you guys are, if you mean Evernote or you mean any of my other companies or Alturtles. Uh, but in general, most of the things I do, I'm just more interested in things that are global. Uh, I don't know. They're just more fun to work on. And uh, certainly at Evernote, we were global from the beginning, and the vast majority of our users were, were, were global, were outside the U.S. Uh, and um, we did it organically, uh, but, you know, we were just software, so there wasn't no, like, heavy logistics or infrastructure. Um, we learned a lot, um, and there's a lot of nonsense. There's a lot of, like, bad advice that comes along with this. The, the, the biggest thing was uh, a lot of people told us that, uh, oh, man, you could never be successful in Japan. Because Japanese consumers have totally different tastes and Japanese software users have totally different tastes. And like, you know, it's very hard for an American product to succeed in Japan. And oh my God, you can never succeed in China because Chinese users have totally different expectations. You know, we actually heard advice like, you know, Chinese users don't like a UI that's too nice. They kind of want things to be like cluttered and messy. And like, really? That sounds like extreme bullshit, but got a lot of that from consultants and advisors. And, um, yeah, you know, it turns out that all of that is wrong. Um, I like to think of it like this, like, um, uh, General Motors, right? Makes a lot of cars globally. And when I'm in China, I realize that, hey, man, there's a lot of GM cars in the roads here. And the GM cars in China are actually different. They're like different names, different brands. They look different from the GM cars in Europe. And the GM cars in Europe are different from the GM cars in Brazil. And the GM cars in Brazil are different from the GM cars in the US. So General Motors, spends a lot of time trying to figure out what is the exact like market dynamics and what is the local taste? How do we make a car that's going to do the best in each market? Obviously spend a ton of resources on that. But BMW sells more or less the same car everywhere. And, you know, iPhone sells more or less, I mean, Apple sells more or less the same iPhone everywhere. And Tesla sells the same thing everywhere. And, you know, World of Warcraft is the same everywhere and has global players. So what I kind of realized is... Uh, Regional differences in taste matter for the mediocre. So if you're making kind of an average car, then yeah, you can optimize. You can sell slightly more of them by really finely trying to understand the alleged differences between Brazilians and Japanese. Or you can just use those same resources to just make a product that's so good that it, that it transcends local differences in taste. And everyone wants it. And so that's what we try to do at Evernote. That's kind of what we try to do in, in our other products when that's appropriate. And the way to do that is to just, yeah, just really have a high bar for quality. And the other thing we did at Evernote is we had teams all over the world and we built Evernote all over the world. We designed it and built it, not just, you know, we weren't like designed in California and made in China. We were like designed in California and Japan and China and Zurich and Brazil and everywhere else. So we tried to get the best people and the best ideas for everywhere, but like, our team in China wasn't trying to make Evernote for the Chinese market. It was trying to make Evernote for everyone, but using those influences and those ideas. And, you know, we try to do that for everything now at All Turtles. Uh, it doesn't make sense for everything because some of our products, you know, are have logistics aspects. They only make sense in a certain country. But when possible, I prefer to do uh, to do it uh, globally. And actually, no, we spent very little, very little money on marketing. Uh, although we did take a lot of the localization very seriously. We had, uh, you know, very high quality trying to understand the local culture and speak in the language correctly. Tatiana says, hello, Phil. I was really touched by your post on LinkedIn about being essential to helping overcome the crisis. Thank you. We just talked about that. 
Do you consider in this matter taking some mentoring as real address help? If so, I'd like the opportunity to apply for your mentoring if possible. What's the best way to shift? So, oh, that's 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 very kind of you. Yeah. So I'm look. I'm always happy to talk to people. Um, I one of my biggest phobias in life is uh, um, uh, I am afraid of disappointing people. It's like really difficult for me. Um, so I am very reluctant to set expectations for like you know what someone would get from mentoring relationship or whatever uh with me having said that i am also totally you know i need to drink coffee every day and i'm happy to drink coffee and have interesting discussions with people so i am definitely happy to uh you know get together with anyone who's interested over a virtual coffee uh, i'll work with uh with the folks at this ama to kind of get my contact info and yeah if anyone wants to uh meet up for a a zoom coffee or you know hopefully at some point a, a, a real coffee uh i am always pleased to do that uh just uh you know don't, don't expect that to be a world-changing experience for, for either of us. Luke Lightning says, question, hey, Phil, which products being developed at All Turtles are you most excited about? Um, yeah, wow. Well, is that like asking like, you know, who my favorite child is? Um, uh, I'm just joking. Don't have any children. Don't particularly like them. Um, but uh, I am really excited about everything we're doing or else we wouldn't be doing them. Like literally, like the best thing about the way, like, look, many things about the way that I've set up my life are not ideal. Like, I work a lot. I'm not necessarily the, the happiest person all the time. Uh, but there's one thing that I've managed to do, which I'm actually really proud of, which is I've managed to structure my life so that there's very little bullshit in it. Almost none. Once in a while, but almost none. I have this allergic reaction to, like, boredom, to bullshit, and 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 I've managed to structure my life. So that I have very few meetings where someone is just saying some random nonsense that I don't care about or that I'm just dealing with, with stuff that I don't care about. So literally, like, if I'm not excited about something, I'm not going to work on it. Um, and it's not just me, like the team that we have is, is this kind of amazing team. And we really try to like have this ethos where we try to care about important things and we try to be excited about it. So there isn't, I guess the flip side to that is that there is no project at all turtles that I'm not excited about or else I, we wouldn't have started and I wouldn't be working on it. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm excited about all of them the same. There are some that I, that I think are like more timely or something like that. Uh, we have a couple of projects around uh, really reinventing what health is, like how to think about personal health and wellness that I'm like super excited about. One of our, uh, of our companies is called TELUS. Uh, they do uh, precision radar for elder care which is like nuts. They're just like doing really well. It's this little magical device that you plug into a wall and it automatically figures out the health status of everyone in your room. It can see your heart beating. It sees your breathing. It sees how you're sleeping or walking and changes in behavior. And it can be used to help uh, elderly people stay at home longer. It's amazing, uh, kind of world-changing and uh, has passed all sorts of tests and trials and they're actually selling the product. So that one is pretty amazing. Uh, one, of our, one of our projects called Spot, it's an AI for... Uh, workplace harassment and discrimination reporting and really reporting and training about any kind of sensitive issues. Uh, it, it, it just won the uh, Fast Company's Ideas That Changed the World 2020 award. So I'm really excited about that. I think as like in this concept of what are the new essentials, what are going to be essential to the reopening of the world? Well, one of them is going to be how do you continue to have cultures where there's you know as little discrimination and harassment and bullying as possible? And this is a big part of it. Uh, Carrot, uh, one of our, one of our portfolio companies is doing, uh, uh, fertility care, uh, and they just launched a new product because of the COVID pandemic, which is now they're, they're helping employers help 
their employees who are pregnant because it's very stressful to be pregnant right now during the coronavirus crisis. So a bunch of things that I think are the new essentials that I'm really excited about. And there's a secret project that uh, that uh, we're hacking on right now, which is uh, very germane, Jackson, to uh, to to COVID and to working remotely into productivity. That's just like a super lot of fun. And I hope to be at a point where I can actually demo that in a couple of weeks. But that's still a secret for now. Presh uh, says, hey, Phil, big fan of your work. Thank you. Um, What's the framework for deciding which products problems you'd like to focus on uh, at All Turtles? Um, so we actually published this whole like framework of this whole taxonomy. We've like classified problems into like five different types and we gave them funny names. Like there's the, the flying shoe and the Costner and things like that. And I think it's like, I think it's on our podcast and a few things. I'll, I'll, I'll find a link. It's actually a really cool framework uh, that uh, Jessica, uh, one of my co-founders and I, uh, I recorded uh, how we think about it pretty rigorously. And that's been, that's been really fun. I'm not going to repeat all of it here, but you should check out the podcast. Um, but the short version is um, um, the word problems is important. So I think there's like two, there's basically like, think of like two families of approaches to innovation. There's like things that are just meant to be like, that are like artistic, like inspirational and um, um, that aren't necessarily solving problems or just creating something new. And then there's, there's problem solving. And we're better at problem solving. We're not as good as the like, hey, let's come up with a crazy thing that doesn't solve a problem necessarily. That we're not a problem that people know about. And if they don't know about it, it's probably not a real problem. Um, but just like make something that like no one knew they needed, but it's actually this like cool or beautiful thing for the world. Like to me, that's, that's art. And there's definitely many like really cool products and companies that are created that way. Like I don't know that Instagram was like solving a problem that people could have articulated beforehand. And yet it, you know, it did a thing. Um, I've never been good at that approach. Uh, and that's not, that's not old turtles game. We, we, we solve problems. So the first thing is to whatever it is that we're going to work on, you have to articulate it as a problem. You have to say, what's the problem? Which means you have to point to actual living human beings that have this problem right now, not a hypothetical future problem, no like blockchain nonsense, actual human beings have a problem that are alive right now, quantify what the problem is, quantify its impact, and then decide like, is this a problem worth solving? In fact, we, we have a framework that we call uh, problems worth solving. Where we think about like, well, what's worth doing and what, what's not, but we consider it like that. So it really starts with sp stating it specifically as a problem, stating who does this problem affect? Do we think that helping those people is like possible and, and a good use of time? And once we have that, then, you know, a bunch of other factors come into place. But the, the, the primary thing is what's the actual problem? And uh, again, that's not the only way to make startups. You can do the other thing. You can do the, 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 the just kind of artistic approach. Uh, and that's great. Uh, I just don't have that kind of talent. So we do problem solving. Catherine McIntosh says, changing how you eat or don't eat. Uh, oh, I guess she's been quoting me. Uh, quote, this is easily the top three most important things in my life that I've ever done. It's absolutely transformative. <laughs> what are the other two things? <laughs> it's good. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I do know what the other two things are, but, uh, I don't know that I can necessarily, uh, uh, talk about them. Um, so one of them, so, so basically, um, one of the most important things in life that, that in my life that Catherine's been talking about is when I, uh, when I started fasting and taking it seriously and kind of working on my health and it's just been, it has been totally transformative. It's just like ridiculously, uh, ridiculously important. And, um, 
another one of those things is, uh, you know, partially related. Uh, but, you know, a few years ago, I don't know if you guys remember, but a few years ago, it was legally required for every investor or CEO in San Francisco to get into meditation and mindfulness. Like there was like some kind of a state ordinance or something. People were being imprisoned if you were, they were insufficiently mindful. So, you know, like everyone else, I followed the law and I got into meditation and, and mindfulness. Uh, and, uh, that's been also like transformatively important and very useful, like, which I know isn't the point. In fact, I know that if you say that, like, you're doing Buddhism because it's useful, like, you're not, that's kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of what Zen is for. It's not a productivity hack, but it kind of is. Uh, and it's kind of been great. Uh, and, uh, I could talk about that for, 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 for hours. Uh, and it's really opened up my way of thinking about, uh, about everything. Uh, and then the third one, I guess, you know, I guess uh, actually just happened recently. Uh, I just spent two weeks in, uh, in the Amazon, um, with an indigenous tribe, just like in the middle of the, of the Amazon. Um, and it was great. Amazing, amazing, total brain rewire, change of perspective, understanding what a system is, what complexity is, what balance is, what power is, uh, all sorts of things to talk about. So yeah, maybe those are, maybe those are three good things. I'm sure there's a couple of other ones as well, but. Thanks for calling me out and just randomly picking the number three. Jason. Hey, Jason. Calacanis says, uh, thanks for doing this, Phil. Uh, thanks for having me. Are you kidding? This is great. Uh, my question, can you talk about your massive weight loss uh, and how that didn't, didn't impact your as a founder leader? Do you think you were perceived differently based on your weight as a founder leader? Sorry, this question feels too personal, but I'm coming into someone who struggles with weight. And thanks for your advice over the years. Um, yeah, no, it's not too personal at all. Uh, so I... Um, uh, I have been, you know, I went back actually, I asked my mom to send me like old photos of myself because I was interested in like, when did I get fat? Cause I didn't remember. Cause I remember like as a kid, I was skinny. And so she sent me a bunch of old photos, like me at, you know, age five, age seven, age 10. And I was pretty skinny. I was a skinny, skinny kid at five, at 10, at 12, at 15, at 17. And then there was a photo of me at 19 and I'm fat. And I'm like, huh, I don't remember this. But something around the very end of high school, or the beginning of college, somewhere around my 18th birthday, I like just became overweight. And then it just like went from there. Uh, and a few years ago when I was kind of at the at my height, I think I was like 260 or 265 pounds. And, you know, my BMI was like north of like 35, which is kind of in the morbidly obese range. And, um, you know, it just, it just, it just happened. Uh, and then I, um, I said, all right, I gotta like, I gotta take this seriously. And I had tried a few things off and on, um, but I, I thought, okay, I, I started reading a lot about fasting. Actually, Loic Lemur uh, told me about it and sounded stupid. I'm like, Loic, this is stupid. This is another thing that you're just into, but it's dumb. But I looked into it because I basically wanted to like prove to him how like fasting is super dangerous and stupid. Uh, so I read about it. And like, as I started reading about it, I'm like, huh, this actually makes sense. Like the metabolic pathways here, like makes sense to me. Maybe I should try it. And so I tried it. I decided, okay, fine. If he can do it, I can do it. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna not eat anything for three days. So I decided just to try. First day, I was like, oh my God, this is so hard. I'm hungry. I'm gonna die, but whatever. You know, I'm just trying it. Louis can do it. I can do it. Second day, hardest thing in the universe. I feel miserable. I feel like crap. I don't know, but this can't possibly be good for me. Woke up in the morning of the third day, best I've ever felt in my life. Just like morning of the third day, it was like things are clear. I feel great. Uh, and then I, you know, read it more, started doing it more. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been transformational. So I lost like about 90 pounds. I've kept it off for about three years. I kind of go up and down a little bit. I'm about 10, I'm about 10 pounds high, uh, higher than my normal weight now because of the 
just much less motion and much more eating during the lockdown. But, you know, I can control it. Back from, I actually haven't eaten in three days. I'm going to have a good meal right now in about two hours. It'll be my first meal in three days. Feels great. Uh, I have, you know, I haven't, I have not positioned myself as an expert on this. I don't give medical advice, uh, but I know what kind of works for me. And I've done a ton of research on it. Very quantified. Talked to a lot of doctors, a lot of researchers. I have been incorporating that into a few of the products that, that, that we're working on. Not necessarily fasting, but just some of these like core principles that, you know, that, that are fascinating. That, that's actually a whole, a whole topic that I would love to talk about, you know, with, with more time about just what, what we've learned about health and the kind of bullshit that like, most people just do incorrectly. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's totally affected me, Jason. Thanks for the question. It's totally affected me, I think, and how people perceive me. Um, I don't see how it couldn't, and that's not fair, but, but it has. I definitely feel a lot better. Well, first thing, I feel better, right? And so I feel better and I look better. I mean, not great, but better. Uh, and that makes me more confident and that obviously projects and makes a big impact, right? Like how you feel about yourself has a massive impact on how other people perceive you. So just that, but also, yeah, I think, uh, I think that the country and the society, you know, unfortunately is quite, um, uh, you know, quite sensitive to, to weight and to age. And I think I, you know, I look and feel younger. Uh, so yeah, I think I have been perceived differently. I am, you know, and with employees, with investors, you know, how often I get on TV, all that kind of stuff. Um, not necessarily in Japan. I think they liked me better when I was fat in Japan. Oh my. Uh, it's kind of a different culture. Like they, 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 there's different norms. I remember being in Japan a few times and people would like in business meetings, like they would like rub my stomach and laugh because I was so fat and they're like, that was okay. And I had to be like, wait, what? This is, this is a thing we do here. Oh yeah. I guess it is kind of funny. So not, not in the U S uh, but yeah, I do, I do feel a lot better and I'm not, you know, I'm not recommending it uh, for anyone. Although I do think that thinking through, like, I think we have enormous amount of really bad ideas about health and weight and exercise and eating that are just wrong in this country. Uh, and sadly, most of the world. And I think it's interesting to like talk through them uh, and to, uh, to, you know, see things differently. So. I'm, I'm glad that that's been, then that's been okay for me. Uh, Alex, uh, asks, uh, we're building a real time platform called Answerable. It's a good name. And we're wondering what critical tipping point a platform has enough data to really derive good insights. Um, yeah. I mean, so I talked about this at the beginning, right? Like in the beginning, at the start, it's probably not a lot of data. It's probably your intuition. And then you like, and then you start getting data and then you decide when, you know, when, when you have good data. Um, there's two things here. So one is a platform. The word platform is interesting. Are you really a platform? That's an interesting thing to ask yourself. Uh, I remember, um, uh, when I met, when I first met Bill Gates, I met him at some, you know, some fancy thing when I was CEO, whatever. Note. I met Bill Gates and, um, uh, I was introduced to him and, you know, CEO of Evernote. And this was pretty early days of Evernote. And he had, he like, he had kind of heard of us, but not really. And so he said, Oh yeah, what, what do you guys do again? Can you remind me? And I said, yeah, we're a platform for, you know, for, for, for memories, uh, or something like that. But I used the word platform and he's like, you're not a platform. I'm like, well, okay, really? He's like, yeah, platform means that you have made something that you create more external value. You create more value to the people that build things on top of your platform than you capture yourself. 
So he said, like, Microsoft, like Windows, is a platform because the amount of value that is created by everyone building on top of Windows is much more than the value that Microsoft wound up getting from Windows. He said, Facebook's not a platform. Because like the amount of, if you like add up all the apps that run on top of Facebook, they're, they're, they're not equal or greater to the, what Facebook is worth. So, and he said, Evernote's not a platform. Yeah, you've got people that are building things in Evernote, but like most of that value is going to you. And I was like, man, that's kind of a dickish thing to say. But yeah, you're totally right. Like he, he, he was right about that. And it really kind of motivated me to think more about as I'm building platforms. And I think Old Turtles is a platform, but the definition for me is that there's more value created on top of it than we're capturing. Um, so I don't know if, if that applies to you or not, but but it's fun to think through. Not fun, the opposite thing. Kind of unpleasant and obnoxious, but but true. Um, in terms of how much data you have, yeah, I mean, look, just like Google, how to do like statistical like significance and probability. And like those, that, those like relatively well-established, right? Like it's not a question of like, I can't tell you how many data points you need because that depends on what what is your null hypothesis? What are you trying to like prove or disprove? But it's, you know, it's relatively well established and uh, it's surprising to me how many, like how very few investors and founders actually like remember their basic statistics. So yeah, just like Google, you know, S tests and P tests and statistical significance. And it's not, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, but in the beginning, just like use your, use your instinct. Alex asks, uh, what would you suggest for a very regulated company, SEC, where user testimonials for referrals are either straight up not allowed or require super fine inspection with regards to disclosures to avoid being sued? I don't know. I mean, I think if your primary concern in your company is to avoid being sued, I think you should have a, you know, a serious think about whether or not you're doing the right thing. Like, do you want to be spending, like, I would want to be spending my days if that was my primary concern, if I'm like, shit, the thing I'm worried most about is how not to get sued and how to cover my ass, I would just be like, eyes, because that just sounds stressful. Now, maybe you're doing something super important for the world and you've decided to bear that stress, right? Maybe this is a healthcare thing or something where it's like, yeah, that's just part of the game. In which case, yeah, you just, you know, you made an explicit decision that that dealing with lawsuit bullshit is just something that you have to do because it's so important. and just try to have clarity around that. But again, without more context, it'd be, it'd be hard to, uh, uh, you know, hard to say, but I, I would have a hard time working on something like that unless it was really, really, really super worthwhile for the world. And I don't mean like worthwhile in terms of making money. I mean, like, like I would consider the price of worrying about this to be a really heavy price. And I would ask whether I really am ready to pay it. Juan Juan, it's a great name, says, uh, I remember when Twist first started and Jason had you on the show. Uh, Huh, better memory than I do. I remember that it happened, but I can't remember what we discussed. Um, I remember your story when you were planning to close down Evernote, then an angel came to your rescue and give a check uh, to run me to success. How did that happen? And what were you feeling at the time? Yeah, this is, uh, this is yeah, totally right. Uh, I came within 10 minutes of having to shut down the company. I decided that I was going to shut it down the next morning. It was 3 a.m. I decided, okay, that's it. We're out of cash. I need to lay, I need to, I need to go to sleep. Wake up, come to the office the next day, tell everyone that they are laid off. Uh, this was during the 2008 financial meltdown, uh, the previous managing through crisis. This is the, this is the third one of these things that I've tried to manage through. And, um, right before going to bed, I, I got an email and I said, oh, I'll read one more email. And it was from this random Swedish guy who said, hi, I'm a random Swedish guy. And just want you to know that I love Evernote. I love using it. It's changed my life. And I was like, oh, that's nice. Cause you know, maybe feel better. Cause you know, they say if you like, 
help one random Swedish guy, it's worth it. Um, so that made me feel a little better. And then he just went on to write, uh, so I'm just writing to see if you need any investment. And I was like, why, yes, we would like some investment. Uh, and then I stayed up instead of going to sleep. And 20 minutes later, I was on a Skype call with him. And uh, two weeks later, he wired us half a million dollars. Uh, and we stayed alive. Uh, and then that was just enough to get us through the crisis. And then, you know, and then after that, we raised like $300 million more, not all at once, but <laughs> over the next few years. Uh, so yeah, that actually happened. That is a true story. And um, um, that's what it was. I mean, I guess the moral of the story for me is uh, always reply to emails from Swedish people. Um, Vitali says, um, how do you estimate tech risks while investing or building a ML product? I guess machine learning, maybe. I have an MS in data science and was working in the industry for five years. I saw many companies fail to ship uh, because they didn't make an algorithm to work. Building a product is hard and ML in most cases makes it even harder. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think um, this is true of AI in general. I think you got to ask like, so we don't invest in or build AI companies or products, right? We solve problems. And we're looking for the most direct solution to the problem. And if that solution, if the most direct solution requires machine learning, great. But it's not like we don't start with what's a cool, like, how do we use machine learning? We start with how do we solve this problem? And it happens that there's a large class of problems. In fact, this is, this is kind of the old turtles, you know, a big part of the old turtles framework. Someone asked previously is, um, you have to solve a real problem. And, you know, we have to have experts as founders who really understand it. And it has to be, you know, self-sustaining. And uh, the last one is kind of important. We have to be able to solve this problem for real within 12 to 18 months. So we only give ourselves a 12 to 18 month window to get an initial product to market in a way that would have been impossible two to three years ago. So what technology has changed to make a problem solvable today for real, not like in a science project, that whereas like three years ago, it would have been crazy to think about. And a lot of times today, the answer to what's changed is, well, we just got, you know, we have better ML tools, we have better AI, we have better networking. So a lot of times that answer is technology. Not always, sometimes it's societal. There's probably a whole lot of problems that are solvable now because of how people are relating to COVID that were probably crazy to attempt to do a few years ago. So if you start that way and you say, what's the solution? Then it like the risk takes care of itself, right? Because you haven't tried to stuff ML into some kind of a product you've said, this is how I'm going to solve this problem. And it requires this exact particular step. And I'm an expert at it, or I have experts at it. So I think a lot of the companies that I've seen that have failed to do this are like, they're not clear exactly. Like it feels like they were sort of tech first. They were like fetishizing the, the buzzword, the technology, not the problem. Having said that, um, you can always fail, right? Failure is always an option. Um, and um, one way, one advantage of having the problem solving mentality is we're looking for founders who understand the problem completely, whose life work has been to put a dent in this problem, who are in love with the problem and indifferent about the solution. They might have a hypothesis about the solution, but they're hopefully willing to iterate through many possible solutions to see which one solves the problem best. So if solution number one is do something, something with machine learning and that doesn't solve the problem, great. What's solution number two? What's solution number three? And again, the founders are problem focused, not ML focused. So it's more scalable. Uh, Tammy asks, uh, will remote work actually be permanent? 
uh, a lot of folks I know can't wait to get back to an office. Others are happier campers than they've ever been before. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I kind of like working at home. Um, it's fun. Uh, you know, like I avoid most people. I compulsively do math. Like, yeah, it's kind of, I'm kind of living my best life. Uh, this is kind of cool. But I also know that I'm lucky because I don't have a real job. Uh, most people can't do this. So I think, uh, I think remote work is going to be an aspect of being remote is going to be present forever now. Like, for example, I think that most meetings, even when offices reopen, I think most meetings will have some remote participants. Even if some people are there in person, they'll always have some remote participants. I think we'll have very rarely things that are all in person in one space. I think even after the pandemic is, is done, certainly while the pandemic is going on, which may still be for you know another year or two, um, there will be a remote component, even if it's not all remote. And I think that changes a lot of things. And so we're working on a, a few things about that. And and in terms of my, in terms of Alturtles or some of the other companies that I'm involved with, uh, yeah, a lot of them have been remote forever. I mean, for, for a while. And uh, I don't think any of them are like necessarily itching to immediately get back to a physical location. So I think it'll be, I think remote stuff, I think all remote will last for a while longer. And then even after it lifts, it'll, it'll be some remote and that, that'll probably be permanent. Uh, and I think that's generally a good thing. Again, for people who can do their work remotely, which I think is probably like a third of all the possible jobs. Uh, Vince says, question, after scaling Evernote and then working as a VC, I'd assume you'd advise many companies not to go the VC funding route. Why would you assume that? Did you raise money for AT or did you bootstrap? And when would you advise in either direction? I'm asking because impact-oriented businesses may not have aligned short midterm goals with a typical investor and the investor could pressure product team without having any knowledge of the market or problem space. Yeah, I mean, look, um, uh, I had a lot of uh, VCs at Evernote. Um, Sequoia was our biggest investor and we had uh, uh, Morgan Thaler, which is now called Canvas and Meritech and KOTU and, uh, you know, a few others. And in general, my experiences there were, were, were good, were very good. Uh, not easy, but good and useful. At All Turtles, we have, we have great investors. We have VCs, we have a general catalyst, uh, we have Salesforce ventures. Uh, we have a bunch of, a bunch of just Kind of friends and contacts of mine uh, that I've you know that I've known from from Evernote days or before. I put I put a, more money than I probably should have into it myself personally. Um, and I guess you know when when should you bootstrap versus raise uh, VC money? Um, well, you know, I guess you can. I guess the first thing is, can you bootstrap? So like, yeah, if you've got a few million dollars laying around or have easy access to it, then sure, why not? That's not very common, right? Most people don't don't have that. So I think for, for the vast majority of people, you kind of need outside capital. Uh, so then the question is, where are you going to get that capital from? Where are you going to get that money? And uh, money comes from three different sources, uh, debt or equity investment or revenue. Uh, most startups don't have easy access to debt unless you're, you know, like a, running a restaurant or something, in which case, yeah, debt is maybe fine. Uh, plus, I'm an immigrant, and I guess immigrants don't really like or understand debt. I like my my brain doesn't really work with debt very well, um, so I try to avoid that when possible. Although you know we have some now, uh, so it could be could be very useful. Um, and so then, really, it's a question of investment or revenue. Both of those are expensive. Like one is not better than the other. Uh, they both have a cost. 
right? The cost of investment is you give up ownership of, you give up some ownership of your company and you have to deal with investors, which is, you're right. They sometimes are very annoying, but sometimes not. Um, the cost of revenue is you have to deal with customers who are always very annoying. Um, so you have to decide like which of those is, uh, you know, which of those is better. But honestly, usually you don't have a choice, right? I have not met many businesses other than those that have been started by, you know, third time entrepreneurs that just have a lot of access to money that have much of a choice. Like usually, like if you have access to VC money, you're going to take VC money. If you have the kind of product or maybe you're a consulting company where you have services where you can bootstrap with revenue, maybe you can do that. But, you know, it's rarely, it's rarely that you have access to all of these things that you can get, you can choose. It's usually like you do the thing that your business calls for. Um, I guess. Uh, I'm currently in a phase of my life where I'm very much enjoying running a self-sustaining company. All Turtles is, you know, we are self-sustaining. We're no longer living off of investor dollars. We are, you know, more or less profitable, you know, some months more than others. That feels great. Uh, that's, you know, I've been a CEO for 23 years. Of those 23 years, my first two, we were profitable because my first company, we didn't know that investors existed. We didn't know there was such a thing. So we were just profitable for the first day. But then starting in about 2000, starting my second company, I learned all about VCs and investors and then pretty much was never profitable since then. I think Evernote was profitable for one month when I was there. We basically got it to profitability and then raised a ton of money and like hired and grew a lot. It's profitable, you know, now, but that, that took, you know, 10 years, 11 years or whatever. Um, so in the last 20 years of being a VC, up until two months ago, I was profitable for one month. And now that AT is profitable, I think I've tripled that. So like, I think I've had two profitable months at AT, give or take. So I have increased my experience as a CEO threefold in the past two months. And it feels pretty good. It feels nice to run a profitable business. I like it. Uh, I don't know exactly how long I want to keep doing that. Maybe at some point we want to raise a bunch more money and expand again. Maybe not. But at this point, we're able to be profitable. So why not? So I think it, I think it kind of comes down to that. It's uh, what do you need for the business? Would you be doing it anyway? And then, well, what do you have access to? Sir Charles asks, uh, the first browser plugin ever installed was Evernote. Me too. Thank you. It made me nervous. <laughs> me too. <laughs> was there friction for others? I don't know. I mean, do you mean like for what? Like privacy, that kind of stuff? Like we, we built it really correctly. So I wasn't nervous about that. Uh, and I really liked, like I liked it a lot. It was super popular. I think we were the most popular browser for a while. Maybe, maybe still are. I don't know. Well, sorry. No, the most popular browser was always like ad blockers. We were the most popular non ad blocker browser. And, um, yeah, for a long time, it was the only browser plugin I had. I think it's still the only browser plugin I have. I think maybe now I have Zoom as well. Um, for a while, the only other browser, the, the only browser plugin that I found to be as delightful as the Evernote browser plugin was, I forget what it was even called, but there was a plugin that basically, um, auto just changed every instance of the word literally to figuratively. So whenever you were reading anything and it said literally, it would just change it to figuratively. That's it. It was like, it changed my life and improved the internet immeasurably. It was, it was figuratively mind blowing and life changing. All right, let's do one more because I really do have to bail. So sorry, I'm just doing this in order. We'd, we'd love to, to to answer more questions maybe if we had more time. Uh, Steph asks, uh, hi, Phil, in the aftermath of the current sanitary crisis. Santa, can you guys? Hmm, thought I had a the green screen. You can't see my apartment. I wonder what is going to become the norm. Companies looking to exclusively hire local folks to create stronger bonds and minimize carbon footprints or distributor companies with employees all across the country world. What's your take? Well, you know, both, obviously, right? I think uh, companies that can function 
distributed and remotely will do so. That's just the superpower now and will be forever, right? Like if you, if you, if you're building the kind of product that is create, that is good at, at being done remotely, I think you should, you will do that. And companies who are good at that and who are able to do that will have massive advantages. So I think, I think distributed and remote working is going to be, is, has just gone through a step function where it has become much more important than it ever was. And it's going to stay super, 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 super important. Uh, having said that, there's lots of things that you can't do remotely. And for those, yeah, I think we need much more resilient local ties and bonds and businesses and, and, and minimizing carbon footprint and travel and all of that stuff. And I think that'll be long lasting as well. So I think for things that can be remote, uh, they will be. Um, and yeah, I don't expect that to change. And, and we're, we're betting on that. We're working on a few things. Thanks for listening to Phil Libin's Ask Me Anything. If you'd like to participate in weekly AMAs and discuss all aspects of startup life with Jason and our community of 25,000 founders, join us at thisweekinstartups.com slash slack. Thanks again to LinkedIn, Salesforce, and Pitney Bowes for making this possible.